This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book and is number 11 of the series entitled The Form of Sound Words. Let me remind you that we are not formalists. The word is translated in the other epistle to Timothy, a pattern. The apostle said that his life, the manner of his conversion, was a pattern. And the same word is repeated in 2 Timothy, hold fast a pattern of sound words which thou hast heard of me. It doesn't mean that we were to be slavish and bind ourselves down to a mere literality. The word hypotyphosin, translated pattern, means a rough sketch before the finished design. So you and I in our ministry are just filling in that tremendous design, the purpose of the ages, and keeping to the general outline that is given us in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And this series, which is being tape recorded, has in view helping those who may have Bible classes and teaching others that they may get some sort of vocabulary, some sort of dictionary, some sort of explanation of basic terms. I trust that it will be useful for us all to consider these things. Well now, last week we were considering, last time, the word calling. You see on the top of this chart, the word klesis, calling. Well that leads us to a called out company, ecclesia, the church. We must rid our minds of the the thought that the church necessarily means a building. That today is, of course, quite good English. You speak about a church being built at the bottom of the street, but God isn't building his church at the bottom of the street. He's building it upon the one foundation of Christ and he's using living stones, not merely bricks or masonry. Then something else has got to be done and done very, very carefully. I can't quote the piece from Shakespeare as I should and I don't like to mangle the words that he's written. But you may know that in one of the, I think it's in Macbeth, he's got a desperate work to do and he's interviewing a couple of low-down characters. He wants them to do a dark deed. And I think they make the remark that um, they are dogs or something. He says, oh, dogs, yes. There are spaniels and there are retrievers and there are bloodhounds and the bulldogs. What sort of dogs are you? So I say, it's one thing to say the church but you say, which church? But you say, there's only one church. Oh, well, let's see. I'm looking at Acts 7. And the speaker is Stephen, who was stoned for his witness. The first martyr in the Christian faith. And this is what he said. Acts seven thirty-eight. He's speaking of Moses. Verse 37. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in Mount Sinai. So that long before Christ came, long before the Gospels were written, there was a church at Mount Sinai. Stephen says so. So you see, it must mean something a little different from the everyday, ordinary conception of a church. Now the word ecclesia means a called out company. And in the Acts of the Apostles, as we have it open, 
you'll find in the 19th chapter that there's no hesitation of using the word church of a guild of uh, or a city council. The 19th chapter, 32, 39 and 41. Thirty-two. Some therefore cried one thing, some another. For the assembly was confused. Now, if we were reading the original, we say the church was confused. This carry on was saying, great is the honour of the Ephesians or whatnot, was a, an assembly, a church. But not the church of God, but it was a church. And the other reference, thirty-nine. But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. That's a court of law, called out for the purpose. And then, verse 41, and when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. So three times in the Acts of the Apostles, the word ecclesia or church means, was used of a pagan meeting place. It simply means everywhere are called out people, and you want to know who the people are and what they're called to before you know what the church is. You see, if I just step through the scriptures, I have a church in the Old Testament. There's one passage. In the book of Genesis, chapter 28, I think we'll just refer to it because it may not, uh, it's better to see for ourselves and stick to the fact that we're the chapel of the opened book. Chapter 28, God is speaking concerning Abraham. Verse 3, And God Almighty bless thee, and make thee fruitful, and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people. Now, if you've got a marginal reading in your Bible, you'll see that it reminds you an assembly of people. And the Hebrew word there translated is this similar word, a called out people. So right back in Genesis, we have a church. At the foot of Mount Sinai, we have a church. Well, then we'll move up into the New Testament and in Acts, in the Matthew 16, our Saviour said to Peter, on this church, on this rock will I build my church. And then after that was said, after that was said, our Saviour for the first time made known that he was to be put to death. And Peter had never heard of it before and he turns round to the Lord and says, oh it cannot be. And our Saviour said to him, get thee behind me Satan. Now, could you belong to a church? Could you belong to a church that didn't know Jesus Christ was to be crucified, buried, and raised again? In the 18th chapter of Matthew, tell it to the church. But Christ was still there among them. He hadn't offered himself without spot to God. So you see, you've got to be so careful. If you make an indiscriminate use of the word church, you can mean almost anything. So, once more, we are, we are appreciating the fact that the great principle, rightly dividing the word of truth, obtains here as it does everywhere else. The church is a generic word. We want to know which church. Well, let's move then to the Acts of the Apostles, the chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Now, I've met some folks who tell me that on the day of Pentecost, there was gathered together the church made up of both Jews and Gentiles, and that they were all baptised by one spirit into one body. I don't think I misrepresented them, that's what they tell me. But you say, that's what it says. 
Well, friends, I think we're better have a look, don't you? Just to make sure that we're not listening to our own thoughts or turning aside what God has said. Now, what is the meaning of Pentecost? Fifty. Seven weeks after Passover, 49 days, brings you to the 50th day. And that is embedded in the book of Leviticus, where we have the feasts of Israel. Seven weeks after Passover, they were to meet and have Pentecost. Only seven weeks had passed since the death and resurrection of Christ. Well, those who came to keep the Feast of Pentecost had never heard of it. It had never been preached. The disciples who were there were all scattered and unbelieving and running away. They hadn't been brought together. And these folks who came from different countries round about had had a plan, their visit, to keep the Feast of Pentecost all months beforehand. And they couldn't travel very quickly. So that it's entirely impossible to say that when they met together they were all consciously there to become the church. Well, you say, when they did get there, that's what happened. Next thing is, who were they that came? Well, I'm going to read from Acts 2. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now, I've been told that this was a mixed company of Jews and Gentiles. And when the Peter stands up to speak to them, he says to them, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. What's the prophet Joel got to do with the church? You read it and see. And then Peter addresses them and says, ye men of Israel. He couldn't have said that if he was speaking to Jews and Gentiles. He would have to have said like Paul said, and whosoever among you feareth God. But no, he said, ye men of Israel. Or again, he said, men and brethren. Would you say, well, then Peter, of course, was now conscious that he mustn't limit the uh, extent of salvation to the Jew, so he was welcoming the Gentile. Well, you know, if that's the case, how are you going to count for this? In the 10th chapter, Peter receives a vision. And wondering what it means, he discovers that there are some coming to inquire the way of salvation, to know the word of God. And his name was Cornelius, and Cornelius was a Gentile. Now, if you say that the church began at Pentecost, and Peter was the one who opened it, can you explain his words now? He looked at Cornelius, a Gentile, and he said, verse 28, Ye know how it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew, to keep company or come unto one of another nation. But God hath shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. What's happened to Peter? Did he forget all about Pentecost then? Or have we made a mistake? And then at the end of this story in chapter 10, you'll find what he says. Verse 47. Can any man forbid water? that these should not be baptised. Well, he was, he was thinking that he ought to forbid. Now, that's the word with which the Acts of the Apostles ends. Paul dwelt in his own hideouts and received all that came unto him, no man forbidding. No man forbidding. Peter would have forbidden. Well, there's a church then that wouldn't have accepted you without a tremendous bother. When you get to the end of the Acts of the Apostles and Paul is at Rome and speaking to the elders of the Jews there, we are told that they listened to him all day long and then because they didn't believe, he quoted Isaiah 6 
for the last time in Scripture, their eyes are closed, their hearts are hardened, the salvation of God is sent to the Gentiles and they will believe it. That's where the door opens for you and me. Not the beginning of the Acts, but the end of it. If we belong to a church that came into operation at the day of Pentecost, we ought to be very, very concerned because we cannot heal the sick and cleanse the lepers and raise the dead. I know there are some meetings who say they do. Well, they may be wrong, but I think they're more consistent than some of us. If we say we start with Pentecost and we haven't got a ghost of an idea that anyone's got a supernatural gift in order to make us wonder very considerably. There's one other uh, set of church teaching that I want to in- introduce to you, so we pass on to something at the end of the book, the book of the Revelation. <coughs> where we have the opening of the book of the Revelation, the Lord telling uh, John to write to the seven churches which are in Asia. And when you get to the last chapter of the book of the Revelation, he mentions those churches again and that angel again. It's one book right the way through. But these churches have been lifted out by expositors and made to fit somehow the whole Christendom. And by so doing, they've robbed the child of God of the key to the book of the Revelation. Now, I want you, if you will, to let me go through quickly the references in these seven churches to him that overcometh. Will you just look at Revelation chapter 2? The first church which is addressed is the church at Ephesus. And it says in verse 7, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You turn to the last part of the book of the Revelation and the tree of life is there and they have access to it in the paradise of God. Why rob the book of the Revelation of that key merely to make Ephesus fit some period right back in the days of what's Constantine or I don't know who? You see, it's not, not accepting the word of God as it should be. Or look again, there's another church. Verse 11. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. The second death is mentioned only in Revelation chapter 20 and 20. The second death shall not be hurt of the second death. And in Revelation 20 it says, I saw those who were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and they shall live and reign with Christ a thousand years, and they are priests unto God, and they shall not be hurt of the second death. Don't you see? It's linked. What are you doing then taking this and handing it all around the history of the last 2,000 years? And so we might go on. Uh, take the uh, last one, uh, verse, 20, verse 26. And he that overcometh and keepeth my words unto the end, to, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And you get that in the book of the Revelation. The man child caught up to heaven to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Well, we might as well go on then, I think. Verse 5 of chapter 3. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and his and before his angels. I will not blot his name out of the book of life. That's mentioned only in the last chapters. And then we have further down in um, uh, verse uh, 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and he will sup, S-U-P, 
The only other references to the word sup is in the closing chapters, the supper of the great God and the supper of the Lamb. Then finally, to clinch it all, verse 21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Over and over again the Lord says, He that hath an ear, let him hear. As though, he says, I might be talking, but you know what they're going to do? They're going to listen to all these other explanations and this will be left on the shelf. That's what's being done with this book. So we persistently open the book and we say, don't listen to me. I'm only pointing out to you what's written in your book and it's your responsibility what you do with it. So there you see, we've got a church in the Old Testament, we've got a church before Christ died, we've got a church that was composed of Jews only with miraculous gifts and you've got now a, a church, a series of churches in the day of the Lord, right at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom. Now, where do we come in? Well, we are not the Jews. We are not to do with the promises made to the fathers. Because if you come back to our epistle that we read just now and read the ones to whom it was written, you say, oh, I know it was written to the Ephesians. Well, you don't know the character of the Ephesians. So we'll look at chapter 2. He says in verse 12 of chapter 2 that at that time ye were without Christ. You see, it's written of Israel that of them concerning the flesh Christ came. They entertained in prophecy and type and shadow and hope that he would come. Although when he came they denied him. But no Gentile had got any prophecies, promises, types and shadows. He was without Christ. And we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. And strangers from the covenants of promise. Having no hope without God in the world. That's where we were. I have no fathers in the in the Bible sense. Oh, I had a father and grandfather and that. But I have no fathers. It's one of the peculiar privileges of Israel to them belong the fathers. And the promises are made to the fathers. Well, what promises were made to my fathers, I don't know. And they've never been kept. God never made any promises to them. I'm a rank outsider. No covenants were ever made with me or my people. I just stand there without hope, without God, without Christ. And then in his mercy and his grace, he saved me, he redeemed me, he accepted me, and he made me a member of the body of Christ. All like that. And am I going to swap that? Am I going to let that all be smudged out to satisfy anybody? Never. Never. We're giving away our birthright if we do so. Well, now we'll notice that in chapter 3 of Ephesians, oh, chapter 1 I want to look at first of all, we read that this afternoon as our lesson. And it ends up with a definition of this church. Verse 22, it put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body. Well, you can say that is true of any little assembly that might be found on earth today. But wait a minute, friends. The church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Is there any assembly of God's people on earth that could take to themselves that that is the definition. They are the fullness of him that filleth all in all. You'd want the whole company there to make that true. This is the church in its reality in the heavenly sense. Whether it's represented on earth by a gathering here, an assembly, or a church, or whatever you call it, is beside the point. If you can meet together with God's people, do. If you can't meet together, it doesn't mean to say you don't belong to this church. This is where Christ is head. 
Not down here, but there. So if you go back for a moment, you'll see that it says in uh, verse 3 that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Well, you say, where are they? Well, I don't know any more than you do, friends. But the book tells me that these heavenly places is where Christ ascended. He was set at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power. Far above all principality and power is where Christ is seated and he is the head of that body, the church, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. If you will now turn the page to Colossians and get him to tell you all over again as he does, a second time, there'll be an emphasis again. He says, in verse 23, at the end of verse 23, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. That's the second time. The church, which is his body. Now, how did that come into existence? Well, he doesn't say this was called into existence at Pentecost. He says, whereof I am made a minister. But Paul, you were an unbelieving, persecuting Pharisee when the day of Pentecost was here. Oh, he said, yes. But this has been entrusted to me as the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3 says, I, therefore, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. Does the prison ministry mean anything to you? Some people have never heard of it before. Well, it's about time you did because Paul, as the prisoner, <coughs> declares that as the prisoner of Jesus Christ, when Israel had gone out into their present blindness at the end of the Acts of the Apostles, you can't be grafted into the olive tree of Israel if you want to. You can't say to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for that's all gone. When the Israel was set aside and Paul was the prisoner of Jesus Christ for us Gentiles, he declares that he received by revelation the present dispensation of the mystery or secret, which has the Gentile particularly in view. So he says here, for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister, according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you, to fulfill, or better still, complete the word of God. Now we don't want to be offensive, but if a person says, I have not the remotest idea of what the teaching of Ephesians and Colossians is, I have to say to them, although you've got a complete Bible bound in Morocco, so far as you are concerned, you haven't got a complete Bible. And I've met quite a number of God's people who haven't got a complete Bible. I won't name names, but somebody came to our doorstep and, you know, started all the things they go all the way through, you know, the type of person. I listened for a little bit. I said, look, you keep your Bible shut and I'll keep mine shut. Now tell me in your own language, the first half of Ephesians. Not the remotest idea. I said, I knew that. You haven't got a complete Bible. You're taking me back to the kingdom to do with Jehovah and all that. I said, you haven't moved on to where Christ has revealed. And that's, uh, that's true of more than one sect of the, uh, that we meet. So here we have a, a, a claim upon us that Paul, as the prisoner of Jesus Christ for us Gentiles, received this revelation. He says, even the mystery, which has been hid. Now in Ephesians it says it was hid in God. 
In Colossians it said it's hidden away from ages and generations. Well, if that doesn't mean that it's not possible to find it by searching, how can God speak? He says this is the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to me, he says, less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should make it known. Now, do you believe it or not? Here is the possibility of entering into a calling such as is so wonderful you can almost feel it's too good to be true. God is coming with hands full of blessings beyond dreams. And then all so many turn back and say, like the Lord said, the old is better. The old is better. Well, here it is. Even the secret, the mystery, which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And what is it? Christ among you. The hope of glory. Not merely limited to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. How many have read the gospel according to Matthew? And never stop to say, well, why am I reading this gospel? Or you could read it and should read it as a part of God's revelation of his truth. But you put yourself in it. But you say, I should, shouldn't I? Well, our Saviour said, you remember in Matthew's gospel, go not into the way of the Gentiles. I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And when Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans in the 15th chapter, he said, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. Well, where do you come in there? And writing to the Hebrews, he said, Therefore leaving the word of the beginning of Christ, the first principles of the doctrine of Christ, the elementary beginnings of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. Don't remain just in the babyhood teaching. Go on and grow. There's more, you see, than merely just the beginnings. All the beginnings are wonderful and without them there will be no endings. But that's the trouble, you see, just remaining. And then we're so illogical. You say to a person, when you die, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to heaven. I see. And what do you think is the sort of quintessence of Christianity? The Sermon on the Mount. I see. The meek shall inherit the earth, and you're going to heaven when you die. You say it's all the same thing. Well, you wouldn't treat a, a, an ordinary newspaper like that, let alone the word of God. So you see, there are three great spheres of blessing. The earth is to blossom and bud, the people of Israel to occupy a renewed and rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, and the nations of the earth are going to learn the law of God one day from that center. That's not yet come. But all Israel one day will be saved and blessed people. But there is a company who, like Abraham, lived in a tent and was willing to be a pilgrim because he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, and that is the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, the new Jerusalem. Well, when you get to the Ephesian position, which is far above all heavens, for Ephesians 4 says, Christ ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. The church which is his body is the fullness of him that filleth all in all, and that's their position in heavenly places where Christ sits. You're going to barter it all away, simply because you say, I've never heard of that before. Well, that doesn't prove it's right or wrong, does it? Let's thank God that you may have had an opportunity to hear it. But don't take it from me. Go back to the book, search and see, and if so, accept it with thanksgiving. So, we've had a rather rapid run through these various features. 
Let's come back again to the two words that occupy the top lines in this chart. Ecclesis and Ecclesia. They are linked together. The Apostle, after he had first of all gone through that opening of Ephesians, you remember, he said, now I'm going to pray for you. I've taught you a bit, I'm going to pray for you. That you may know what is the hope of his calling. He was very concerned about the calling. To walk worthy of the calling. Well, supposing everyone that's listening to me just ask themselves the question, do I know what my calling is? Or have I got a vague idea, I don't know whether it's on the bride or the body or a kingdom or what. You see, it, it's, it's terrible to think that Christ has shed his blood, died and risen again, to make these things possible for us, and we don't know. Well, here's a God-given opportunity to search and see. So we have the calling. Then there are three words attached to these callings. We've had, a, we've had a look at those, I remind you, in this series on the form of sound words, the word adoption, which doesn't mean adoption in our modern sense, but it's to legally appoint the firstborn son and heir in a family. And we are reading Romans the ninth chapter that to Israel pertaineth the adoption. So they're the firstborn in one family. And then we have in uh, the epistle to the Galatians, a company where there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, and they have the adoption, and they belong to Jerusalem, which is above, which is the mother of them all. And then you have in Ephesians 1, the adoption, in connection with a company which is far above all principality and power. Now there you've got three firstborn sons in three different spheres, and the only answer is, there must be many families of faith belonging to different spheres. So you're going to mix it all up and forfeit all that in order that you may still maintain that the church began at Pentecost. Well, there's no pressure, friends. Uh, it's for you to decide. But so far as some of us are concerned, we have seen this and nothing can take it from us. And our desire is that others should enter into the joy and the fullness and the liberty and all the wonder of it that we have in now little measure experienced. So we're taking a good long time in this series. We've only reached the letter C, and we're going through the alphabet. But by the time it's done, I do trust that there'll be such a stir up among some of you people that you'll begin to say to yourself, well, after all said and done, there must be something in it. And if only that will start working, and you go back to the book, and you say, we're going to open the book, and you're going to say to the Lord, open my eyes and my heart and shut them against all the teachings and traditions, however venerable they may be. It may be the biggest miracle you'll ever experience in this life. Some of us know that. And some of us wish that others could join in with it. So I commend it to you. The church does not necessarily mean a meeting place. It doesn't mean necessarily a building on earth. It is a called out people called out by God for a special purpose and we want now to look up into his face and ask him to direct our steps so that we may adorn this doctrine of God our Saviour in all things.